As Nick said, we're picking up in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you want to open your Bible or grab a Bible nearby, um, Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's a little ways past the Gospels. Of course, there's an index in the front if you need help finding it. For the past few weeks in the book of Ephesians, we've been um, doing a mini-series called Forged Family, and we've been looking at this new community God has made in Christ. And so um, we started a few weeks back with the fact that God has brought us all near, and then we saw last week that God has made us one, and then notice this week that we are being built together. Now, any of you who know me know that I make a big deal out of grammar. And so I just want to point out, because it's significant, that the last two titles of sermons, both which were just pulled from the passages of the last two weeks, were in the past tense. We have been brought near. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the separation between you and God has been removed You've been brought into his presence. You have, past tense, been brought near. In the same way, in Jesus, we saw last week that the hostility and the enmity between people who have come together in Christ has been killed, and those have been made into one new man, past tense. What we look at today, though, is the fact that we are present tense. In fact, it's it's present in the most present sense, so not just something that happened right now, but something that is happening and continuing to happen right now, okay? We are being built together. And so, again, if you want to look at your Bibles with me, we're going to pick up in verse 19. And as we read, I want you to follow the metaphors. I want you to notice the images Paul uses and I want you to notice the progression in those images. So be thinking about where the words Paul uses come from, especially the nouns. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. God, would you just, by your divine help, give us minds to understand ears to hear, and hearts to apply your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that even what we do this morning as we gather and sit at your feet to hear your word read and taught is a reflection of what you are about in this passage. And so we pray, God, that in the midst of this next 35, 45 minutes, in fact, throughout our whole service today, that we truly would be being built together into a holy temple, into the dwelling place of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, again, 
I want you to notice the progression here of metaphors. So he begins with a little bit of review in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's where he started all the way back in verse 12 a few weeks ago. But he says you're no longer that, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Okay? And so there's a move from non-citizen to citizen. And, and what's the imagery there? The imagery is a national imagery, right? The imagery is a commonwealth imagery, to use the language he used earlier. We were uh, foreigners, strangers, aliens, but now we are fellow citizens. And I, I just want to make a quick aside here about this word here for fellow citizens, as well as later when it says growing together and then finally built together. In each one of those places, Paul adds a little um, prefunctory uh, beginning phrase making a compound word. In each one it begins with soon, which is why each one of those says together, okay? We are part, uh, we are fellow citizens with, we are growing together, and we are being built together. He adds that little prefix soon to each one, which just means together or with. And the reason I want to draw your attention to that is because all the way back in chapter 2, it said that in Christ, we were made alive with Christ, we were raised with Christ, and we were seated with Christ in each of those places using that same little prefix, okay? And so Paul wants to make clear in the first half of chapter 2 that we have been united with Christ, and so what's happened to Christ, he's been raised and ascended to heaven and seated has also happened to us. But then he takes it and he says, what has happened to you because you were in Christ, with Christ, has also happened to you collectively together. Okay? And so he's tying these two ideas together. In other words, the closer we grow to Christ, the closer we grow to one another. What's happened in Christ has happened to us and therefore to all of us, and that makes all the difference. But he starts with this national metaphor, okay, of, uh, of a commonwealth or of a nation or of citizenship. And this is an appropriate one because Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so here Paul is effectively saying, in Christ you are no longer outsiders but have become part of God's kingdom. You have now taken on Jesus as your king, you're a citizen of the kingdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians we function as ambassadors of that kingdom. Okay. But then notice he gear shifts and moves the image forward, changes his metaphors pretty rapidly actually, and by the tail end of this sentence, notice what he says, fellow citizens with the saint and members of the household of God. Okay, That's like taking a microscope and starting at the 100 times zoom, or at the 10 times zoom, and then clicking it over to the 100 times zoom, right? A nation is, is big, it's broad, a family is very small, it's intimate. Okay? And it's, it's an amazing thing to be a part of God's kingdom, to have Jesus as king, to be a card-carrying citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But it's something so much more to be part of God's very family. Okay? And so, to put it another way, we haven't just been brought near, but we've been adopted into the royal family. Right? We're no longer just citizens here, we're part of God's family. It's an escalation. It's one of intimacy. And so 
It's not just that God is king, but also God is father. Okay. You see the difference there? There's an escalation, but he doesn't stop there. He says, next, built on the foundation. Now, notice again the shift in language. There's a difference between a house and a household, right? We don't generally talk about a household being built upon a foundation. The household is, is a family. But when he moves to built upon a foundation here, he starts to talk about the building itself. In fact, notice what it says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, more building language, right? And then notice verse 21, in whom the whole structure, okay? And so he moves here to building language, and we would assume, like I said, that he's moving from household to house. But he keeps on going, and he finishes here in verse 21, saying, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. Okay. In fact, he reiterates it in verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, what I want you to recognize is if we were to put on the brakes at any earlier point, we would settle for less than what Paul is trying to tell us we are becoming. If we were to stop with merely being citizens, we would neglect a significant and beautiful aspect of the gospel, that we have been adopted into the very family of God, that we are the children of God. And in the same way, even though temple imagery may not as be as uh, common to you today or as striking, there's also an escalation here when he says, in fact, you are being built into the temple of God, a very, the very dwelling place of God. This is not just the pinnacle of Paul's uh, kind of escalation here. It's a surprising pinnacle. Okay? It's a striking image, and it is the controlling one for the rest of the book of Ephesians. Okay? And again, this language is not necessarily unique to the letter of Ephesians or the rest of the New Testament. It is used throughout, but I want, uh, I want you to recognize here that this changes the building from a generic structure that can be utilized in any way, whether it's a, uh, you know, a town hall where the citizens would gather or a living room where the family would sit or a dining room where the family would have dinner to being a temple, right? There's a, uh, an extension or a growth of the purpose and I would suggest to you that this is essential to understanding what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Okay. The fact that God has dealt with our alienation from him and from one another in the cross of Christ is huge. The fact that he has taken the two and their hostility broken down and made them one and therefore given us unity and made us a family is huge. But God is not merely in the business of making a healthy human community. Instead, he wants to make a people in which his divine presence dwells. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is when we talk about the church, I know that you all understand and, and recognize, even if we betray it in our language, that this is a church building but not a church. But instead, the people make up the church. But the church is a building. And again, not just a generic building. A building, as Peter says, made of living stones. So we're still talking about people. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. 
but it has an agenda. It has a purpose. It has a goal, and the goal is not yet accomplished. Remember what I said? You have been brought near, past tense. You have been made one, past tense. You are being built. Now, Paul has no problem in other places saying you, Christians, are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6. He has no problem with that, okay? But here, he wants to draw attention to the fact that you are not yet what you will one day be. Like I said, this is agenda setting. It shows us the horizon of what God's doing. It looks way down the contours of history and says, this is what God is about. Okay. Why the church? What's it matter? Where we're headed? What are we for? What is our purpose? These are the questions that Paul is addressing directly here. And I want you to notice that he hasn't allowed us to fill in the blank. We don't get to, as a new community of people restored in Christ, set our own agenda, establish our own mission statement, uh, you know, chart our own course. Instead, Paul says, God saved you for a purpose. God made you a new community for a purpose. And again, it is so striking, isn't it, that that purpose is so God-centered? We saw throughout chapter 2 and even in chapter 1, the phrase reoccur, for himself. Why did God save you? For himself. Why did God send Jesus to die? So that he might bring you into his presence. Not just for your sake, to save you from hell, but to bring you into a restored, loving relationship with himself. Okay. And in the same way here, his desire for the church is that we would become the temple. Now again, there's a sense where this is already who we are, but more significantly here, Paul wants us to reflect on where we are headed. And I want you to see what this looks like all the way at the end of history and at the end of your New Testament in the book of Revelation. Turn all the way to Revelation and look with me at chapter 21. Now listen how the end of all things, the triumph of the kingdom of God is described here in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now notice this, this is a proclamation about what's just happened, right? We see this new Jerusalem descending like a bride for its husband and then the proclamation. What has just happened? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's it. That's where history is heading. This is the opening ceremony of the temple of God. 
the place where God dwells, not just on earth in a place where people can come and meet with him, but in the midst of this people, the living stones, his temple, okay? For the rest of eternity, that is where God is headed, okay? So when we go back to our passage here, when Paul describes what's going on here, he describes not just where we're headed, the temple of God, the dwelling place for God, but he also describes how we get there. And that's what his focus is. He wants to show how it is that we are becoming the temple of the living God. What it is that the church is accomplishing as the church does what the church is supposed to do. And so read it again with me, starting in uh, verse um, 20. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so notice three sets of action words there, of verbs. Joined together, growing together, built together, right? That's the activity. That's the present tense of this passage. It's what is happening. It's the agenda for the church. Okay. Now, notice here that this idea of the temple growing is a strange one. We don't usually look at, out at the Seattle skyline and go, man, that skyscraper is really growing, right? But interestingly enough, in Greek, this is an, uh, an intransitive verb, and it's used of plants and buildings. I have no idea why. But it is helpful to recognize the word there of growth is one that the Bible uses for the church throughout its pages. Just read the book of Acts. It's everywhere. And the church grew, and the church grew, and the church grew. Whereas built together, uh, well, we'll return to that in a second, but, but growing here recognizes the fact that the size of the temple present tense is not the size of the temple future. That what God is doing is still an open invitation. That he is still interested in bringing more people into the building project, assigning them roles and making them stones. In other words, the quarry for the stones is still active. Okay? But when we read being built together, this speaks not just of more and more stones, but the stones being shaped together in deeper and stronger ways, okay? God is not just making a pile of stones, come what may, come as you are, unhewn and just toppled into next one another, right? He is shaping the stones. They are being built together, okay? And then joined together, okay? Now, this is something we probably don't experience very often. If you have ever tried to build a cabin, I think you would know this, but if you want a building to be sound and safe from the elements, stuff has to fit together, right? You don't want any gaps. You don't want any spaces. And the truth is, if you have a bunch of stones with rough edges, not only do they perch precariously, but they let the elements through, right? And so the idea here of being joined together is like if you think of bricks being fit exactly in alignment with each other, sealed, you know, with mortar in between. That's the idea of joining together, okay? But notice that he doesn't just tell us these things, 
which I think, again, based on the building met metaphor, gets bigger. The building grows in sizes. It adds wings and new rooms, okay? Uh, it grows in its shape as the stones are shaped, and it grows in unity as, as these separate stones become more and more perfectly put together until it's like it's one thing, okay? But he also fills in a bunch of the language of the essential aspects for that to be the case. And notice the first one he mentions here. He says that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay. Now, what does a foundation do in a building? Well, it's pretty simple. It supports everything that you build above ground. Okay. And when you don't do that, the building is unstable. You remember Jesus' parable he tells about the wise man who builds on the rock versus the man who builds upon the sand, right? And when the storm comes on the sand, the building collapses because it has no foundation. And so here he says the building that we're building here also has a foundation. Okay. And that foundation he describes as the apostles and the prophets. Okay. Now the apostles is a pretty easy one to guess. The apostles are the 12 who were appointed by Jesus Christ. The apostles include the apostle Paul. They're the one whose letters we're reading as we are this morning. They make up the witness to Jesus Christ, right? Acts tells us that apostles had to have seen the risen Lord and been appointed by him for ministry, right? This is the first generation eyewitness testimony, okay? When he says prophets here, there's a little bit of a reason to scratch our heads because the word is a broad one. And so which prophets? All the prophets? What prophets? Are we talking about Agabus who shows up in Acts chapter 11 and says, hey, God has showed me there's going to be a famine we need to prepare. Are we talking about the four virgin daughters of Philip who were prophetess? Are we talking about prophets with a uh, capital P like Isaiah and Jeremiah? Are we talking about the same prophets in chapter 4 when, God says, or when Paul says that God has given to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers? We're not really sure, but I would suggest to you with some confidence that this pair of apostles and prophets seems best understood to straddle our Old and New Testament. Okay. That the prophets are those who spoke of Christ's coming who wrote the books of the Old Testament, who carried the word of God that the Messiah would come. And that the apostles are those who announced that the Messiah had come. Okay? In other words here, the apostles and prophets' foundation is not just a past tense thing that happened. He's not making a historical reference to the breaking of ground of the Christian church. He's talking about a foundation which we can simply just call the word of God and a foundation that still exists in the scriptures as we have them. As it says in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is living and active, and therefore the ministry of the apostles and prophets is living and active. Okay. In other words, I would suggest to you that the way that we grow as a church into the temple requires that we are built upon the foundation of the scriptures. Okay. It has to establish what is true. It has to establish what is right. It has to establish where we are going and where we are headed to do anything else is to build an unpermitted add-on to the temple of God which will not stand the passage of time. Okay? It has to be on the foundation. 
And so this is one of the reasons why here at Calvary we make it our habit every Sunday to open the Word of God, to seek to understand the Word of God, and to implement and apply it in our lives because it is the only firm foundation. And Jesus says the same thing. Remember the parable that I mentioned to you? We generally talk because we take shortcuts in our evangelism as if Jesus and the gospel is the foundation in that parable. Because that's the only foundation we can build on is Jesus Christ. Side note, Paul agrees. He says the same thing, not just in a minute, but he also says it in 1 Corinthians where he just says, now there's a foundation that's already been laid in Jesus Christ and no one can lay another one. But interestingly, in the Sermon on the Mount, that parable, he doesn't say, he who built on the rock built on belief in me. He says, he who built on the rock is the one who obeys my word. And he who built on sand is the one who does not obey my word. Okay? And so there is a correlation, there is a connective tissue here. The prophets, and remember Paul says that Jesus Christ is a spirit of prophecy, carried the word of God about Jesus that makes up our Old Testament. The apostles were appointed to carry his message and proclaim himself in the New Testament. That is our firm foundation, but to build on it means to submit to it. To build on it means to stand on it. To build on it means to, in faith and obedience, apply it in our life, and there is no other foundation. And this is essential for us to understand because this word is unchanging and all other foundations are constantly in flux. You can't even tell me this morning if eggs are healthy or unhealthy, right? We do not know. We change our mind every decade, okay? And that's a terribly minor thing, right? But we do it with really big things. We are constantly shifting as the world shifts around us what we believe, okay? In fact, notice how Paul warns us about this in chapter 4, and listen to the imagery he uses. He says, uh, and we'll return to this passage later, but notice the purpose in verse 14 of chapter 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Okay. And so there is, a, uh, there is a tendency for truth to change with the times. And so the church needs a firm foundation, something that can be trusted and tried upon. Now, if you're like me and you are a skeptic by nature, you go, yeah, but different times have read the Bible in different ways. And that's absolutely true, and I promise you that repentance of bad theology is always a good thing, okay? We're called to a life of continual repentance. When we realize that we've read our uh, Bibles poorly through, you know, the blinders of our cultural time, we should identify that and repent of it. But, but the way that we come to realize that is because our foundation is firm and can be pressed against. It's like the formation of a sword, okay? When you form a sword, you have to have an anvil, and the anvil is stable. But to be fair, when you swing that hammer, based on your quality as a hammer swinger, as a swordsmith, you're only going to get the sword you get. And the sword, in this sense, is not the truth. It's not perfect. And sometimes you need to go, well, that one's flawed. 
but you never go, well, that one's flawed. Let's get rid of the anvil. We need the anvil. It's the stable thing. It's the thing that in Hebrews discerns the very issues of the heart. And when we do reform, and when we do repent, we do it in accordance with the word of God. But that's not all he says. He doesn't just stop there. He continues and he says, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay. And again, this is a big, consistent, used image for Jesus. One that he uses of himself when he's talking with the religious leaders and he says, tell me, in the Psalms, when it mentions the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone, what is that about? And Jesus is kind of being semi-facetious. He's trying to say, it's about me. And your rejection is part of this, but I will be the cornerstone. There's no escaping this, right? But interestingly enough, the word that's used here can be one of two things. It's either a cornerstone being the most important stone in the building of a foundation. Okay. Now, when we do foundations today, what do we do? We pour cement. We create a mold. We pour cement. It's all one thing. But when you used to build a foundation, just like the rest of the building, it was made up of separate stones. The cornerstone was the biggest, okay? The ones that make up the Temple Mount that we discovered a couple of decades ago and have dug out and you can see now are 220 tons. They're massive, okay? And so the idea here may be that of the foundation, the, the catalyst, the most important, the central piece is Jesus himself. But the word is also used throughout Greek literature from about the same time as a capstone, okay? And a capstone is not the first stone you lay, it's the last stone, okay? Think of, if, think of a stone arch and a keystone, right? Where all the stones are leaning against gravity, but the keystone is the one that provides all the tension to hold it in place. It's similar to that. Either way, it is inescapable here the centrality of Jesus Christ, whether he's the capstone or the cornerstone, he is the central figure. Which again, makes sense for a religion that takes its name from his name, specifically from his title. We are Christians, he is the Christ. Okay. But there is a uh, recognition here that there can be no other centerpiece. There can be no other cornerstone. And it is absolutely possible to be biblically founded and off-center. To have a high regard for Scripture and to leave Jesus in the margins. Okay. And that shouldn't happen. In fact, we should all confess that that's terribly unbiblical because Jesus tells uh, a group of religious leaders in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it's they that testify of me. And so if we can't connect the dots between the book of Numbers and Jesus, we do not yet understand the book of Numbers. Okay. But there is the ability, isn't there, to get our focus off, to, to be obsessed with the narthex of the church instead of the altar. To fret over the bathrooms of the temple instead of the central figure. And the recognition here is a simple one, that there is no temple without Jesus. That there is no salvation by any other name under heaven than the name of Jesus Christ. That, uh, that Jesus is our reason for being and our central focus, our Savior and our Lord. This is clearly what Paul means here when he says Jesus is the cornerstone. 
Okay. He is not on par with the apostles. The apostles aren't Jesus version 2.0. He stands alone and apart as the living Son of God, our Savior and Lord, and so he must be central. But notice he says, continuing on, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Let's look at that word grow for just a second. As I mentioned, the idea of growth doesn't really have to do with stones that are already part of the temple getting bigger, obviously. It has to do with adding more stones to the temple. In other words, Christianity is an evangelistic movement. It has a proclamation and a message. It goes out into the words of Jesus, into the highways and the hedges to declare the good news and say, this is for you. Come on inside. Okay. And so it is appropriate that we do not neglect or forget that how we get to become the temple is that we tell other people the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what God is up to into the world in the world right now. That's why when he speaks to his disciples, right before he ascends into heaven, he gives them the great commission. And what is it? To go into the world and preach the gospel to who? To all nations. Okay. And the truth is, to do so, you don't have to leave the borders even of King County. They're here. But we have a message to carry and a proclamation to make, and that is how the church grows and a lot of times when the church becomes ingrown, it stops growing entirely. A lot of the times when it becomes a club of, you know, the, uh, the, the righteous chosen or when it becomes a place where we just enjoy one another's co company and we lose the sense of mission, we don't neutrally stay put. We decline. Okay. In fact, you can't really have Jesus be central. You can't have him be the treasure and the focus of your heart and not tell people about it, okay? But he also says here that it's being joined together. And again, I want to reiterate that you cannot accomplish the growth of this temple as an individual in isolation. You cannot build your own independent life on the, on the foundation, make Jesus your cornerstone, be committed to telling others and neglect to be joined together. We need one another. Okay. And we can measure the level of the growth of the temple by the fittedness of things that don't naturally fit together, which is what we talked about last week. As these barriers are broken down, as our rough edges are put away, Paul begins in chapter 4 by saying, Brothers, Bear with one another in love. Put up with one another. Tolerate one another. Forgive one another. These are all things he's going to hit over and over again. And the more that we grow as a family, as long as it's on the foundation with Christ being the cornerstone, the more we grow into the temple. Okay. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together. And as I mentioned, the built together here involves activity, it involves change, it involves transformation. And this is where Paul is going and what he wants to talk about for the rest of the letter. We already looked at chapter 4, but let's look at it in a bigger picture. And although, again, he's going to change the metaphor from growing into a temple to growing into a mature human being, 
the emphasis is the same. And so notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That word there for building is the same one from chapter 2. And it's, it's, it's an architectural word. It means to build. Okay? It's not hidden somewhere deep in the Greek. Okay? The building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay? And so again, what are we now? We are the body of Christ. Where are we headed? To the full expression of that body. A community that completely represents the complete, perfect human of Jesus Christ. That is our measure and our standard and our aspiration, to become like Christ. Okay? And how do we do that? What does it say? It's already said that God's given us leaders to do this, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But are they the builders? No, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. At best, they're the foremen. At best, they're the on-the-job training that say, here, here's the best way to swing you know, a long-armed hammer and make the nails go in deep. Here's the best way to level the wall, right? There's leadership here, but the ministry is left to the body. In fact, he hits that more. Notice what he says uh, in verse um, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the body grow? When each part does its part, it builds itself up in love. Okay. And so there is a responsibility and a commitment here to be not just the building but the builders. To speak the truth in love in one another's lives. To encourage and to exhort and to admonish and sometimes to lovingly confront and not as an outsider, someone where we're saying, you need to live up to these standards or else, but as a family member that we deeply care about and have been joined to by what God has done in Jesus Christ. Okay? But the process of building is relatively simple. Here Paul calls it, speak the truth in love. Here's a phrase that I like to use a lot that sums it up. The church grows when the people of God use the word of God in dependency on the spirit of God. It's, it sounds simple because it is. But there's one last piece, and I just touched on it. Notice again in verse 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we can't leave off that little phrase. And what Paul is not saying here is you are being built into a spiritual dwelling place for God. Okay? He is already talking about your living, breathing bodies. Okay? This is a physical reality, and although it won't be completed until heaven, we are the temple physically, the place where God dwells physically in time and space, okay? So what does he mean here, the Spirit? He doesn't say in the Spirit, but by the Spirit. And again, this is one that he hits over and over again in the book of Ephesians, but here's simply what it means. It means that, the, that the, uh, the Spirit is actively working in a growing church. And that's essential. Jesus doesn't say, 
All right, here are the blueprints. Get to work. I'll be back in a few hours. Instead, he did not leave us as orphans, as he promised, but sent us his Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit gifts the church for the ministry. Okay. And so Paul tells us that God, by the Spirit, has given us the gifts of teaching or encouragement or exhortation or generosity or the gifts of service or the gifts of mercy. In other words, God has uniquely equipped you as a church for the benefit of the church. Also, the Spirit leads. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. Okay? And so the Spirit is the one who prompts us, who draws us to consider one another, to talk to one another, who brings about conviction of sin when we're selfish with the way that we treat one another. He's actively involved in giving immediate instruction. And that's something you have to learn to grow and recognize. A conscience can become hardened. The voice of the Spirit can be lost in a thousand other voices that are just the ones speaking in your mind. Okay? You have to learn and cultivate these things, but the only way we grow is by the Spirit, by His gifting, by His leading, and by His empowerment. Okay? Because Paul tells us in Galatians that if we're going to be a community of love, or joy, or peace, or patience, or kindness, or goodness, or gentleness, or faithfulness, or self-control, that only comes as a fruit of the Spirit. Okay. And so we are dependent upon God. We are not contracted by God to do something that he didn't want to do or couldn't do on his own. He wants to do it through us, and that means dependency. Okay. And so we grow by the Spirit. But remember, that's all the how. But what is the purpose? Notice again, it is to be a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. I'm going to cheat a little bit and move forward to where Paul is going to kind of get deeper into this. But it's easy to miss this connection. Okay. Okay, first off, go back to the end of chapter 1, verse 22. This is speaking of Jesus here. It says, and God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you feel the continuity between the imagery there and what we've been looking at? So here, Jesus is filling all in all, and how is he doing that as the temple grows? The bigger the temple, the more God is present in the midst of creation. And what I wanted to draw your attention to is the language of fullness and filling. And then, at the end of chapter 2, he says, you're growing into a temple to be the dwelling place of God. Okay? And so, when is a temple a perfect temple? When it is filled with all the fullness. And this is where Paul goes in chapter 3. Now, I love this prayer. I can't wait to go through it with you. But I just want to draw your attention to the prayer he prays in chapter 3. And I want to draw your attention to verse 19. Okay, this prayer, and we'll get there, I'd encourage you to read it on your own time and think through it, it's progressive. It's a step one, step two, step three prayer. It's a this, I pray, so that this may happen, so that, okay, and so what I want to show you is the pinnacle of the prayer. What is Paul's prayer goal? What is his primary agenda? Notice verse 19. Okay, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
so that you may become more and more what you are already, the temple, right? This is the agenda. This is the goal. But what does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? Obviously, we've already talked about Jesus being at the center pace of that. And so it's no surprise when we get to the picture of heaven in Revelation 7 and we see people from all nations and tribes, they're gathered around and who's at the center? The lamb that was slain. And it's no surprise that filled with all the fullness of God would involve the Spirit of God, right? If we're filled with the Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, then that's more the case. But I want to put one other piece on this, which is totally self-evident in the language. The temple is the place where God is most glorified. It's where he's worshipped. Again, the temple is not a building that exists for some other purpose. It has a designated purpose for the worship of God. And so we can add to all of these other phrases, built on the foundation of the scriptures, where we're growing together as a community, where we're being built up, where Jesus is the center, where we're empowered by the Spirit to the glory of God. In other words, the agenda, and we've seen this throughout Ephesians, culminates in and is fulfilled and is manifested when God is visibly glorious and praiseworthy. Because we're not going to get to the end of this and look at the temple and go, wow, what an amazing building. We're going to say, what an amazing God. Okay. And so, again, how, how do we check the pulse on how we're doing as a community? 